How's it going, Higher Side Chatters? You know, I'm not normally one to delay this sweet, sweet Higher Side action, but I just feel a real need to preface the next few shows with a little THC update. It seems that we've finally shown up on YouTube's radar, and after waking up to the removal of a Sophia Smallstorm episode about Sandy Hook from 2013, I'm sure it won't be long before other shows in the archive trigger a removal as well, and ultimately, I think the YouTube days are numbered for us. I'm not going to appeal, I'm not going to complain, they're a private company, and if they don't want me, I'm not going to beg them to stay. I just want to get out in front of this and inform the listeners as to what's going on and request that you don't use YouTube to listen to the show, or if you do and we suddenly disappear, just know that the show can always be found at thehiresidechats.com or via pretty much any podcasting app. You owe it to yourself with this kind of content to probably use a less centralized method of listening. The YouTube portion of the audience is definitely one of the smaller segments for us, but it still accounts for thousands of people that I'd hate to see go away. So don't let them tear us apart, dear listeners. And while this is a relatively small issue and I'm not trying to be dramatic, it does cause me concern over what the next five or ten years could look like. And I think I'm usually pretty low-key about promoting THC+, but I suppose I should take the opportunity while I have it. If you value the show, please sign up to hear the full two-hour version at thehiresidechatsplus.com rather than just listening to the free hour. As much as I pack into those free hours, imagine what you're leaving on the table with the second. It's only five bucks for five shows a month, and I really want to insulate the Higher Side Chats from any potential trouble down the road. I'm sure, given my situation, given the content we get into, you can understand. And with that... Let's do the damn thing. The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man. Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view. Find the more you think you know, unless you really do. Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show. Great Carl Wood and Company. go higher side chatters another day another deep dive into the strange conditions we find ourselves living under on this island earth a place where pacified people parlay their purposeless professions into night-long netflix sessions extended xbox marathons and social media scrolling just waiting for the next ecstasy-fueled music festival where weaponized pharmacology weaponized entertainment and weaponized sound all come together in a harmony of social engineering hell And it might sound a bit over the top until you examine the history of film to find that its earliest uses were to inject wartime propaganda and positive PR for the robber barons. Maybe you look at television and its sole purpose to show you bright lights and pretty colors just long enough to get to the next commercial break, all while taking your brainwaves down to the level of a nice hypnotic numbness. 
Or perhaps you notice the odd connections between military intelligence, banking families, and knighthood that plague the artists and actors you think you know and love. Folks, they call it programming for a reason, and none know this better than Mark Devlin, one of the returning champions of dissecting conspiratorial culture creation. If you don't remember, Mark is a UK-based club and radio DJ who in more recent years has begun speaking out about the dark forces that have been manipulating the music industry for decades. This led to the publication of his book, Musical Truth, in 2016, and he joins us now, having just released Musical Truth Volume 2. An honor and a pleasure, the man who knows the plan, Mark Devlin. Welcome back, my man. Well, thanks, Greg. And I think you just wrote another half a book right there, brother. (laughs) Yes. Well, people's attention is such a hot commodity these days, especially online. You got to do something to grab them quick because otherwise they'll just slip right through your fingers entirely. Well, absolutely. I commend you on that. And I'm looking forward to linking up with you soon in your hometown as well, coming out to San Diego. Indeed, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. I had a great time taking the Laurel Canyon tour last time you were in the area. We went through and took a peek at the homes and locations of a lot of key events from that time period in the 60s. Got the royal treatment from a guy who really knows the history there. So thanks for letting me and the wife tag along. For people who didn't see it, we did put up a little video of that conspiratorial tour. You can probably find it on Facebook or YouTube. And Either way, I am sure we're going to have a great time in sunny San Diego as well. Yeah, man, that was right in the belly of the beast where all that stuff was happening. So San Diego is the next chapter. And I don't smoke too much of a little smoke, but I might be tempted to have a drink. You never know. Yes, I like it. However I can corrupt you, it's fine with me. (laughs) Man, so it was just a blast. The last times we've talked, you know, you've done a lot of work dissecting the deception of the musical offerings of the 60s, as well as the weaponization of hip hop into gangster rap. And of course, if it's been successful in those genres, I'm sure we're going to find musical manipulation spirals out in all directions in areas of entertainment we might not have realized or have maybe not wanted to realize, which is pretty much the primer for musical truth too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'm sort of going genre by genre, really. It's a case of who have I not pissed off yet? (laughs) Whose heroes have I not (laughs) thrown out yet? It feels like that sometimes. I'm not setting out to do that, but it really feels like I'm pissing on a whole load of parades. And it's quite a difficult job to do because people do have a lot of emotional attachment to certain music genres and certain acts, certain big names in the field. And they don't take kindly to somebody like me coming along and saying, hey, did you realize there's this to know about this person in terms of their affiliations and their bloodline or whatever. So it's not always a popular job, (laughs) but it's an area of research that I think I'm cut out for. And it's work that I think needs to be put out into the world. And so here I am doing it. Right on. Yeah, I do find it to be just really mind-blowing research. And what's so interesting about it is just how all-encompassing it is. You start to feel like nothing is genuine, but I guess that makes it easier to break the addiction at least, right? Yeah, I've gone step-by-step through this research. And in the very early days, I was quite green and quite naive about all of it. I tended to think that it was Miley Cyrus and Katy Perry videos from the last few years that was full of all the occult imagery and the mind control stuff and maybe nefarious sound frequencies in the productions. But the more I delved into the whole area, I found myself going down so many different rabbit holes, to use that old cliche, which I'm sure is a familiar process for many researchers. And I came to discover that it goes all the way back to the early days of the industry. And it's not just pop music. It incorporates psychedelic rock and heavy metal and hip hop. 
and electronic dance music, even country and Western music. Any kind of genre that is popular that has spawned household names is going to bear the hallmarks of manipulation. And people who've not researched it might think that sounds very paranoid and that you're just setting out to find stuff that might not even be there. But the research bears it out. When you look into the prominent names in all these fields, you discover there are connections going into military intelligence. There's connections going into all facets of the establishment, Ivy League colleges and universities, connections into government, connections into secret societies and fraternal mystery schools and all that good stuff. And it's right there just waiting to be found. And all these loose ends are just waiting to be tied together. And that's what my work has consisted of. So Musical Truth 2, the new book, has been tying together a whole bunch of loose ends, taking up a few stories from volume one as well and following them through to some different conclusions and just looking at some new information as well, which I'd not presented before. But I think the overall factor that links all of this information is that of deception and duplicity. You know, if there's an overriding message behind all this is these industries and these institutions have been used to manipulate and deceive the masses for a very long time. The methods and the tactics that are used differ. But at the end of the day, it's all about mind controlling us, the general public, and sowing certain beliefs and value systems and perceptions in the collective consciousness. And I don't take kindly to being deceived and made a mug of. That's what has motivated me to do all this when I discover that I've been duped. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> and that's a very motivating thing, I find. Cheers to that. And it is kind of strange because you think about it and it's like, well, if entertainment is crafted by just a handful of names and a handful of companies and corporations with some sketchy ties, why would the gatekeepers let anyone through that's genuine? If you have control of it, you know, why wouldn't you just make a flavor for everyone when it comes to your control? So, I mean, it's far-fetched when you start to like get down into it, but at the same time, it makes total sense because you see who the big players are at the beginning. And so, you know, right now it seems like the biggest musical trend is EDM and rave culture, kind of mixing that with pop artists, something I've never really been able to get into. But when you get into the roots of where it came from, that's kind of where you started the book, it almost looks like they took the lessons from the 60s and that nexus of music and LSD and then fine-tuned it for a new generation, couldn't you say? Absolutely. That's the way it looks to me. And I spend the first couple of chapters of the book discussing that at some length. I'm not old enough to remember the 60s counterculture scene. So I've researched that from a detached perspective. But when it comes to the UK acid house scene and the massive dance music phenomenon that it kicked off, I was right there in 1988. I was a part of it. So I've got some emotional attachment to that, which is why when I discovered there were nefarious aspects to it, I felt more personally involved in this one. Mm. And there are so many parallels and overlaps between that 67 Summer of Love that came out of California. And so many researchers in recent years with the availability of new information have shown how that whole scene, if it wasn't started from day one by the CIA, certainly was steered in desired directions under some very heavy influence from the CIA. When you factor in characters like the Grateful Dead, who were basically a group created by the agency, and a couple of their members were a part of the Bohemian Club as well, mm -hmm. which spawns the Bohemian Grove annual meetings, which are quite notorious in conspiracy circles. 
Then you get characters like Dr. Timothy Leary, the acid guru, the LSD advocate, who in later years pretty much admitted that he'd been in the employ of the CIA. You get characters like Ken Kesey and his Merry Pranksters. Even, you know, Terence McKenna seems to have had some attachment to the FBI from comments that he himself made. So all these key figures from that scene, it can be shown, had connections to the intel agencies. So we can fast forward 21 years to what was dubbed the second summer of love, coming out of the UK, largely out of London, 1988. And we see so many parallels between this and that earlier scene. So in 67, you had psychedelic rock music coming along to replace these previous forms of music, going hand in hand with LSD being put out there in seemingly limitless quantities, just coming out of nowhere. And being lapped up enthusiastically by all these young people that were gathering in these hippie communes and festivals and stuff. And in the UK in 1988, you had this new form of electronic dance music known initially as Acid House, which again came out of nowhere very quickly. And that was coupled with an instant availability of large quantities of ecstasy, which was the drug of choice for that particular scene. E or MDMA, as it's known, its main chemical constituent, and it's known these days in the US by the nickname Molly. But, you know, this stuff just came out of nowhere in 88. And that whole movement was dubbed by the mainstream media of the time, the second summer of love. So there's the first clue that these two scenes may have been connected. But there are many, many more. And I've got to say at the outset, there's no documentary evidence that's come to light. So there's no memos or whatever that have come forward through Freedom of Information Acts where MI6 or the Tavistock Institute or whatever has said, oh, we created the acid house scene in order to get loads of young people hooked on ecstasy and to kick off this worldwide electronic dance music phenomenon so that we could socially engineer entire generations of people. Also, there's no individuals that have come forward to say, yes, I worked on this project and that's what it was all about. But maybe we shouldn't be too surprised (laughs) that nobody has come forward on that basis. I mean, these things are supposed to be kept under wraps. But when it comes to clues and visual indicators, we get into this concept of placing the truth in plain sight and revelation of the method, which I think I touched on last time, where the occultists that basically run all these projects feel the need to let us know what's really going on, albeit in a very cryptic, encoded kind of way. And there are so many of these when you look at some of the symbolism and the imagery involved with the UK acid house scene. So everything has its own Wikipedia-style cover story or official version of events as to where it came from, you know. And with UK acid house, we get this story of four young London DJs having visited Ibiza in September 1987 for Paul Oakenfold's birthday. He's one of the prominent DJs that kicked off this whole scene. And they were captivated, so the story goes, by the balearic spirit and vibe of the scene out there, largely through the records being played by this Argentinian DJ, Alfredo. And we're told they came back to London and they're so inspired by the wonderful spirit of what they'd experienced there, dancing under the stars and getting high on the music, that they decided to start their own nights in London, club nights where they could play all this stuff. So the four DJs involved were Danny Rampling, Paul Oakenfold, who's gone on to have a very successful career, largely US-based, Nicky Holloway, and Johnny Walker, not to be confused with the longtime Radio 1 DJ, Johnny Walker. 
But the trip that these four DJs made in 87 coincided very serendipitously with the influx of US house records. So at that time, there was a whole load of new records being produced on synthesizers that were coming out of Chicago and a few other American cities. And this observation was actually addressed by Paul Oakenfold himself and Pete Tong, who's another massively successful DJ and broadcaster, also US-based now. And I'm sure we'll get onto some more about Pete Tong in this conversation. But these two in 1988 wrote an article for Mixmag, the leading UK dance music publication, called The Balearic Beat Story. And in it, they said, the emergence of this movement in London has coincided quite conveniently with the ever-increasing popularity of Acid House. Indeed, house music does provide a large proportion of the soundtrack at New London clubs, considered to be the pioneers of this new scene. It was something that a year later would be massive, thanks to what's been called the second summer of love. So they're kind of telling you what was going on there, and they're making the point that all this new dance music coming out of the US coincided very conveniently with these four DJs going to Ibiza, and wanted to bring that spirit back to London. So it causes me to ask whether this scene was being created in order to harness and steer off an emerging shift in consciousness that the controllers knew was coming at that time. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because there was a very revealing interview by Danny Rampling, who's always been one of the more interesting DJs to listen to, in the Guardian newspaper in the UK in 2007. So he's looking back on the acid house scene of 87, 20 years earlier. And in this interview, he says, I'll bring something different to the table here. I felt there was something deeper spiritually running through the whole experience. I discovered something recently through my own research. In August 1987, there was an event called the Harmonic Convergence, a global shift, his words, (laughs) in unity consciousness through dance rituals, which is part of the Maya calendar teachings. And you can actually go on Wikipedia and you get this account of what the harmonic convergence was all about. It's supposed to be an alignment of various planets, which has affected the consciousness of humanity in certain ways. So that's a very interesting thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've got questions now about the true cosmology of the place we live, as you well know, Greg. But uh, (laughs) I do find it interesting that Rampling mentioned a spiritual consciousness component to this acid house scene kicking off when it did in 87. So it's very interesting that in 67, you had all this talk of the age of Aquarius that was supposed to be this new age and the energy of it was being tapped into by this counterculture psychedelic scene. And then in 87, we've apparently got this shift in consciousness going on and this dance music scene blows up out of London along with ecstasy to harness that whole thing and it's dubbed the second summer of love in the media. That's very interesting to me. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you touched on this part because this was definitely in my notes to get to this harmonic convergence. Apparently, it marked a 25-year lead-in to December 2012 and the end of the Yuga cycle, as you said. And I am pretty convinced that these cycles and astrological conditions matter and that the elite work hard to manage them. Because I've had pretty well-established astrologers and magic practitioners here. And they say, you know, look, when Saturn comes around, it requires energy of a certain nature. And you can either do nothing and let it determine how it's going to like manifest or extract that energy, or you can do something that is kind of in line with its personality profile, I guess would be a way to determine it. And 
that's kind of the idea of sacrifice. We have all these indigenous cultures that at certain times they felt the need for a sacrifice because if there's an energy coming that wants death, you know, don't just wait and let it choose who dies, you know, try to channel that and give it what it needs. Feed the beast so that it leaves you alone in a way. And I think the elite are doing this same kind of manipulation with these energies. I know, I mean, maybe they're amplifying negative ones and downplaying positive ones, but it makes perfect sense that this would be an example of a energy coming that was going to shift consciousness in a positive way. And instead you just kind of corral all those people and you send them spinning off into just this dream state of music festivals and ecstasy. And then of course, 2001, we have 9-11, which everyone talks about as a major timeline split and life hasn't been the same since that could possibly be an element of gearing up for that as well but i definitely think they're into timeline management and tying it into our music our entertainment and their attempts to try to channel this i mean i think you're right on man i think it's super provocative and also probably right in line with what's happening well that's right the elites plan not just years but decades in advance and you hear a lot of researchers talking about technology in that regard. You know, it's known what technology we're going to be using in about 30 to 40 years. It's already been developed, but it's just not rolled out to the public until the time is deemed right. So I think it's perfectly feasible that the controllers, who again are occultists, let's not forget, they study things like incoming shifts of consciousness, if you place any stock in that. And it's very feasible that back in 87, they were planning 30 years ahead as to where they wanted to take things. And I make the point in the book that whenever you get any kind of fad or trend or movement that sweeps up large numbers of people and sends them off down a certain path in terms of their behaviors and their cultural values and all that kind of thing, you can be sure that it bears all the hallmarks of manipulation because the controllers have taken all this time and trouble to infiltrate every area of human society literally, are not going to leave to random chance which kind of movements get as big as the electronic dance music scene did, all from these humble roots coming out of the acid house scene in the UK in 87. And that's why I referred to the Wikipedia official version of events, because there's got to be some kind of explanation given as to where any movement comes from. And the more benign and well-meaning it sounds, the more likely it is to be swallowed in terms of that's where it all came from. But what if there's more to know? And just going back to this idea of shifting consciousness and changing times back in the late 80s, there were a number of very significant world-changing events which happened around that time. If you look at 1989, that marked the fall of the communist regime, the breaking up of the USSR and all these satellite Eastern Bloc Soviet states in Europe were all disintegrated. It was the end of the Ceausescu regime in Romania, actually on the winter solstice, I think, 21st of December 1989. Then you had Nelson Mandela being released from jail in 1990. And I do actually remember that happening. So that kind of blows the Mandela effect out of the water in terms of my personal memories of it. But there are all these other changes that were happening at the time. The Berlin Wall came down at the end of 89. So these are all very significant world events. And it does seem as if things were changing then. 
And I even recount an anecdote in the book of a personal experience that I had in the early months of 1990, where I feel I was tapping into some sort of change in consciousness, although I had no clue what was happening to me at the time. So yeah, forward planning counts for a lot. And these guys are masters at it. Right. And another aspect of all that to pile on is indigo kids. You used to hear about these philosophical, higher consciousness, super creative and artistic children that were being born. And new agers were saying, here are the clues that humanity is changing, that consciousness is changing. And I don't hear about that at all anymore, you know, 10 years later. And we've definitely been weaponized with vaccines or something to cause autism. And you could almost say like, Here's an attack on the kids, you know, before they bring in all this new energy, let's just hit them with some chemicals and destroy their lives. Who knows? But I mean, it seems like you could approach it from many different angles and the stories all seem to align to create a synergy of what the elite would want during a period of potential change. That's right. And you got to look at where this whole scene went full circle, bringing it up to date where we are now in 2018. Looking at these massive, large-scale electronic dance music festivals that we have now, there's some clues in the naming of them as to what I think the long-term plan was. So many of the names of these events hint at digital and electronic ways of doing things and the future. So you have events like Tomorrowland, Tomorrow World, Mysteryland. I've actually got a list of some here. And if all these events were coming from different random promoters scattered all over the place, people might be able to make an argument for, oh, well, it's all coincidence or they're just inspiring each other. Somebody comes up with a festival called Tomorrowland and somebody else thinks, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do one like that. But when you find they're all coming from the same place, it puts a different slant on the story. And I mentioned in the book, this company called SFX Entertainment, which has since changed its name and become a different company. And it's now known as Lifestyle Inc. At the end of 2016, the operation emerged out of bankruptcy from SFX Entertainment to become Lifestyle Inc. But on its website at the time, when it was under the leadership of this guy called Robert Silliman, the chief executive, their website said, SFX Entertainment is the largest global, there goes that word again, producer of live events and digital entertainment content focused exclusively on electronic music culture and other world-class festivals. And it goes on to list some of the major events that it's been behind. And they include Tomorrowland, Tomorrow World, Mysteryland, Sensation, Stereosonic, Electric Zoo, Disco Donny Presents, Life in Color, Rock in Rio, Nature One, Mayday, Decibel, Q Dance, and React Presents. It also says that SFX at the time operated Beatport, the principal online resource for electronic dance music DJs and a trusted destination for the growing EMC community, electronic music culture. So this one organization was in charge of so much of that whole scene and where it was all going. And they had all these events where the names hint at futurism and artificial intelligence and digital ways of doing things. You've got so many other events like that, digital dreams and other similarly named events. So I certainly think there was something going on there in terms of what the end game was. But as I say, it all came from these humble beginnings that were centered around London in the second summer of love of 88, which I remember well. I remember 1988 better than I remember yesterday <laughs> and, and going raving to some of these clubs. 
there were all kinds of little motifs and symbols that were associated with that scene as well. And actually, a lot of these had throwbacks to that earlier 60s scene. So when Paul Oakenfold started his Spectrum Night back in London, as an offshoot of that famous Ibiza trip, he used an image of a great big bloodshot eyeball as a central motif for that night. And it also cropped up as the sleeve design for this record, Gibaro Electra, which is one of the early Balearic Acid House records. And that bloodshot eye was previously used by the Grateful Dead on a promotional poster back in the 60s. I've got a bunch of Acid House flyers from nights in 1988. And as well as metaphysical and mystical and UFO and alien themed symbology, you've also got a lot of stuff that cropped up in the hippie era as well. There's planetary conjunctions there. And there's sunrises and solstices and things like that. All kinds of esoteric and occultic imagery on these acid house flyers. You've got references to Timothy Leary. There was this guy called the Divine Styler of Hip Hop, who referred to himself as Timothy Leary, the Timothy Leary of Hip Hop. You've got the phrase turn on, tune in, drop out, which was used big time back in the 60s, cropping up on Acid House Flyers. You've got a bunch of early Acid House records from 88, sampling things like The Prisoner, that cult TV show from 67, which is very much part of the counterculture, and using phrases like far out man and getting tripped out and things like that, all this terminology from the 60s. So there's all kinds of clues there in the records themselves. And the motif that was used for the Acid House scene, pretty much from the start, it cropped up on the early flyers for Danny Rampling's Shum Night. And that was one of those very early acid nights in London. The name Shum is said to represent the sensation that a clubber feels when the chemicals from an ecstasy tablet first start to kick in. Like Shum, you know, they go straight to the brain. So that was the naming of that night. And all over the flyers for it, you had this smiley yellow face which came to be the emblem of, of the acid house scene and absolutely synonymous with it. And by 1988, you had ravers going out in acid house t-shirts with acid house badges, all featuring these smiley yellow faces. The smiley yellow face also cropped up on a load of record sleeves. It was the central design for Bomb the Bass, Beat Dis, which was a, a very big record in the UK in the early part of 88. In the book, I go into the history of the smiley yellow face and there's some very dark and disturbing stuff to discover there. So it first started to get used in popular culture, it seems, in the late 1960s going into the 70s when it was adopted by the advertising industry in the US at the time. And they were trying to shake off some of the doom and gloom that was still hanging around in the wake of the Vietnam War, which was bringing a lot of people down. So a lot of advertising agencies thought, let's put these smiley yellow faces out to give people a more feel-good, optimistic outlook on life. Then it cropped up in the Watchmen series of graphic novels and comics, which were put out there by the illustrator Alan Moore, a British animator who was also a big-time occultist, it turns out, with a reverence for, wait for it, the chaos magic teachings of Alistair Crowley. Mm. Have we heard of him before anywhere? <laughs> so... You had the smiley yellow face there, which appeared with a splatter of blood in the corner of the face. And, you know, there's some stories as to how that smiley yellow face came around and what it represents. It's all tied to chaos magic teachings and nihilistic ways of looking at things. So you had that. And then when Bomb the Bass used it on their record sleeve, they featured the blood splatter from the Watchmen comics. 
But in more recent years, there's been a very dark and unsettling rendering of the smiley face. And this comes down to a series of murders, which has been going on for quite a while in both the US and the UK, it would seem, which have come to be known as the smiley face killings. And Greg, let me ask you, had you ever heard of these things before it cropped up in my book? You know, I'd say maybe little threads, but definitely not tied together and definitely not at this magnitude. But as a cultural symbol, I think, you know, if we're going to say that a lot of things are manipulation, that smiley face definitely seemed like a very shallow, like, hey, just smile. Who cares if you hate your job, hate your life, the war's going on, like you said, you know, just smile, like the most simplistic type of, you know, cultural manipulation. But you really tie a lot of it together. Yeah, I do think this is largely new material, especially at this depth. Right. Well, the reason I asked you about the smiley face killings is because it seems to have achieved very little mainstream media coverage. And I've started doing some talks around the book and I've asked people at these talks, have you heard of these killings? And most people haven't. And I only came across it because I was put onto it by William Ramsey, who's a great researcher and does his own radio shows and stuff. And he's done a lot of research into these smiley face killings as they've come to be known. So it seems to have been chalked up. This series of murders has been chalked up officially as far as that version of things goes to the work of a serial killer. But when you look at the geographical spread of where these murders have been happening, there's no way one individual can be doing it because it's happened all over the United States and there's been a spate of them in the UK in lots of different geographical regions as well. So there would appear to be the work of a coordinated group and yet the police don't seem to be tying them all together and spotting the patterns. But what's been happening is there's been a large number of young clean-cut collegiate males in their early 20s that have disappeared on their way back from drinking at a bar or a club or some sort of party. And so they disappear. And the next thing that's heard about them is their bodies have been found in water. So it's like a river or a creek or a brook or a lake or something like that. And somewhere in the vicinity of where the bodies have been found, there's been a smiley face daubed onto rocks or onto trees or onto the ground in pain. And that's why these have come to be known uh, sort of colloquially as the smiley face killings. So it's some very strange business. And it started to happen in the UK as well. There's been a particular concentration in the West Country, it seems, around Bristol and Bath, that kind of area. There's been quite a few up in the Manchester area. And they bear all the hallmarks of being done on a ritualistic basis in line with what's been happening in the US. And I just find it very interesting that you've got the smiley face cropping up as a very grim motif of what's been going on with these killings. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking the question as to whether it might be connected with the acid house scene and its adoption as the emblem there, particularly when you factor in these chaos magic teachings of Crowley and the way it cropped up in the Watchmen graphic novel series. At this stage, it is just a question. I can't prove any link between them, but I do think it's interesting to factor that in, particularly as not a great deal of people seem to have heard of these smiley face killings. Right. Yeah, I definitely hadn't heard of the killings themselves, but that is super interesting. And we know symbols have deep meanings, and a lot of times only the privileged know those deepest meanings. So I think you might be onto something. It's hard to know if we'll ever get a smoking gun for it, but it's worth exploring. Sure. Well, I just wanted to add a little bit more about where this whole electronic dance music scene has gone in the last 30 years. So it had these 
seemingly humble beginnings coming out of London in 87, 88. And it grew in popularity as the 90s kicked in and you had the advent of UK super clubs then. So these parties would come out of warehouses and fields, which is where the early sort of festivals took place or raves as they were known. And they were then driven indoors to these massive purpose-built clubs, such as the Ministry of Sound in London, and the individual behind that particular location is an interesting one to look at. His name is James Palumbo, and he's known as the Baron of Southwark. So he's from the establishment, certainly, and he's very well connected within establishment circles. And yeah, he's, he's a Baron of Southwark now, <laughs> and he's the guy that established that particular club. Then you had clubs like Cream and Gatecrasher, Golden, Renaissance, Miss Money Pennies, all these massive UK super clubs that put all this dance music out there and created this huge scene that captivated hundreds of thousands of young people every weekend going out to listen to this new music that was coming through. Ecstasy was out there all the time. Every single weekend when kids would go out raving, there would be this seemingly unlimited supply of ecstasy on hand. So the UK scene became very, very massive on that basis. It seems to have inspired scenes in lots of different countries all over Europe. And when it comes to the US, it seems to have been quite late to the party, so to speak, in terms of taking its time to really adopt electronic dance music and particularly ecstasy or molly, as it's known in the States, as I say. But that all seems to have happened in the early 2000s, from what I can make out. And there seemed to have been a big breakthrough around about 2007, 2008, where America finally got it and really understood what this whole scene was all about. And that's when you had big name DJs and producers coming through, like David Guetta and Kelvin Harris, Swedish House Mafia, Steve Aoki, Afro Jack, all these big names, Skrillex then, and guys like Avicii, Tiesto, Armin Van Buren, Paul Van Dyke. And the American scene seems to have kicked off in California, and specifically Los Angeles. We've seen many a scene and many a movement come out of LA. For some reason, California really seems to be the hotbed for all this stuff. When it comes to the emergence of Molly as well, this was very much helped on its way by a DJ producer by the name of Cedric Gervais, who put out a track called Molly a few years ago. And Madonna helped to popularize that whole thing when she got on stage at the Ultra Music Festival. Don't know if that means MK Ultra, but this, this big event in Miami where she got up there and said, has anyone seen Molly? I'm looking for Molly. <laughs> and this seems to have been a direct reference to, you know, the MDMA that was known to be permeating the scene at the time. And it was a reference also to this record by Cedric Gervais. Now, when we get into the whole area of lifetime actors and culture creation, which I think I touched on last time, and I know you've recently had a chat with Joe Atwill, who is the inventor of the term lifetime actor, mm -hmm. it's interesting to bear all that stuff in mind when we look into the background of Cedric Gervais, who is this dance music producer that put out the track Molly. So we find out his father owned a nightclub in the south of France, and his entry on the Resident Advisor website states, Cedric Gervais has had an extraordinary life. I bet he has. As a young teenager, he hailed from Marseille. He headed to Saint-Tropez. And at 14 years of age, not even legally old enough to party with the people he played for, he got a summer residency. He pleaded with his father to take him out of school so he could concentrate on DJing. 
His father went to the local courts and got the agreement. And at 15 years of age, not speaking any English, Cedric decided Paris wasn't challenging enough for him musically, so he packed up and moved to Miami. And this was just at the time when an exciting movement within the club scene was happening, says resident advisor. Cedric saw this opportunity and jumped in. So what luck, what serendipity. But then you discover some more about Cedric Gervais. His real name is Cedric de Pasquale, and he's an actor, literally. He's featured in Hollywood productions such as Patriot's Day and Deepwater Horizon. So Patriot's Day was reinforcing the official narrative of what happened at the Boston Marathon bombing. And Deepwater Horizon was reinforcing the Wikipedia version of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. And you find this guy was featured in both these movies. So it seems to be the same old story every time when it comes to trends and movements taking a foothold. The individuals that are used to kickstart them or that are used as the figureheads turn out to be tried and trusted individuals with establishment backgrounds. And that certainly seems to be the case there. And I think we could probably also apply this to many of the big DJs and producers who have spearheaded this whole scene. Certainly, Paul Van Dyke is a guy that's very interesting to look at. He's a German DJ and producer, an absolutely massive name on the dance music scene. And his status is like that of a god among his fans. I've got a picture here, which I found on the internet yesterday, of a fan of Paul Van Dyke that has had a massive tattoo made on his back of Paul Van Dyke's name and also this sigil, this symbol that Paul Van Dyke has used quite mysteriously on his record sleeves and he has it projected onto massive screens at these big dance music festivals that he plays. And the symbol is like a triangle with two of the corners cut out also into triangles. So you could say it's like a pyramid. But it's a very distinctive design and I puzzled for ages over what it might mean. And then all of a sudden, I happened across this old time logo that was used by MI5, British intelligence, from the 1950s through to the 1970s. And when you invert the Paul Van Dyke logo, just turn it upside down, it becomes identical to this symbol that was used by British military intelligence, where you've got the triangle with two corners cut out. And in the MI5 version, you've got a capstone at the top. So it's like a pyramid with a bloody all-seeing eye in it. <laughs> so you've got Paul Van Dyke using an icon, a motif that was first mm. used by British military intelligence, and he's not the only one to have used it because there's a Japanese DJ and producer by the name of Steve Aoki that has used the same symbol in his flyers and his promotion. So you've got fans of Paul Van Dyke with this bloody sigil carved into their back, and they've got no idea what it means. They've just elevated this individual to a godlike status. And when you look at some of the poses that these DJ heroes strike at these massive festivals, you can think of somebody like David Guetta. He's up there in front of literally hundreds of thousands of adoring fans. And he stands up there with long flowing hair and a beard. I can't think what sort of imagery that might be trying to convey. And he's got his hands stretched outward. And he's controlling this throng of clubbers from the vantage point of the DJ booth, which has become like an altar in a church. Yeah. And that is the status that these DJ heroes have taken on. They're godlike figures. And they have fan bases in hundreds of thousands that absolutely adore them. You can look at the comments that are left on their Facebook pages. People say, you've changed my life. I worship you. I follow everything you do. You are my life. 
It's like this cult type mind control like hold that these individuals have over large numbers of young people. And I think it's interesting when you combine the occult and esoteric symbolism that you see at all these big dance music festivals now being projected onto these massive screens with mind altering drugs, mainly MDMA, ecstasy, but other drugs as well, and also sound frequencies which are embedded into digitally produced music, because all this music is digital and electronic in its base form. It's not natural, organic musical instruments. It's computer generated. So, you know, symbolism plus drugs plus sound frequencies is, to my mind, a malevolent manipulator's dream. (laughs) And could that be what all these events are really all about? Yes, man. And wow, what a great string of information there. But that is something I really wanted to get into was the science of sound. I was so happy to see this chapter in the book. It doesn't get talked about nearly enough, but it is worth throwing in there because it's not just subliminal symbols and music videos. It's not just the lyrics to music or the drugs or making burnout seem cool, but the actual music itself could be tuned to frequencies less harmonious with the human body And it seems like that's been done in the past and digital music even more so. Yeah, let me just finish off that last thread as well to segue into this one with a comment that was sent to me just this week by, I'm not going to name the individual, but it's a Facebook post that somebody made. And it was sent to me by one of my friends to really help reinforce this point about how sound frequencies can be affecting us on an unseen level. All right, so this individual said in their post, I have insider info from a close friend who worked with Bass Nectar. So Bass Nectar is an American-based DJ producer on the sort of dubstep, drum and bass type scene. I think he's based out of San Francisco as he was getting started. So this person said, not that I ever liked that music, but a friend was with Bass Nectar as they were both approached by a government agency to use dubstep noise and heavy bass as carrier waves for psychotronic attacks. She immediately walked away, but Bass Nectar embraced it and now entranced a generation with terrible music used to program the mind. Couldn't make this up if I tried. So, Wow. Yeah, I was delighted to have that come across my radar and fall into my lap this week because it really drives home the idea of these records, this music being used to mind control people and have an effect on a sound frequency basis, on an unseen level. And that's just coming from somebody else that mentions a government agency that tried to adopt this dance music producer to use this stuff, you know. Very interesting. Yeah. So when it comes to sound frequencies, I've done a whole chapter on this and I had to really do my homework on it because the science of sound is not something that ever came naturally to me. I'm the least technically competent DJ you'll ever meet. It's, it's a wonder I've been able to do the job, really, because I'm not technically minded at all or scientifically minded. So I've really had to delve into this one. But I always understood that sound can be used for healing. There are therapy centers which have been known to work with people that have been in deep coma states, prolonged comas, and exposure to favorite songs and certain sound waves and stuff have been known to bring people out of long-term comas. And exposure to good sound frequencies has been known to cure all manner of diseases and physical ailments. 
So it's certainly the case that sound can be used for healing. You can factor in the experiments by Dr. Masuro Amoto, the Japanese scientist that showed that water has consciousness and it's affected by sound frequencies and even the frequency of words, not just in heard audible form, but even in written form. If you expose water crystals, he showed, to certain words, then the frequency and the resonance and the intent behind those words could actually cause the crystals to arrange themselves in certain patterns. And when you would expose them to certain words with positive intent attached, they would create very harmonious results. So it's pretty clear that sound frequencies with benevolent aims and, you know, good meaning attached can have a very positive effect on not just water, but people. But of course, the opposite is also going to be true. And if sound can be used for healing, it can also be used as a weapon. And it certainly has been over the decades. There's even been referenced in certain records. There's one by Kate Bush called Experiment 4, where the whole track is about a secret government military intelligence plan to produce a sound weapon to wage warfare on entire groups of people. So it's been well known for a long time that sound can be weaponized. And it's all down to the frequencies that are used. There's this thing called the tritone, which has been known as the devil's interval, which goes all the way back to the days of classical music from the sort of 16th and 17th century, where composers were well conditioned to steer clear of this particular arrangement of three notes, which came to be known as the devil's interval, because it was said to produce such dissonance, and it was said to be so unnatural to the human ear and to human brainwaves and such, that it could cause people to get into extreme states of panic and even to drive them insane. That was the legend surrounding the tritone. So you bring that up to date with what can be achieved now with computer-generated digital noise, and the sky really is the limit. You can also factor in the comments by this guy, John Todd. I think I probably mentioned this in the last interview as well. I certainly mentioned it in the first book. John Todd, known as John Todd Collins and also known as Lance Collins, was a witch, basically. He came from a long-running bloodline of occultists. And by his own admission, he was put to use in the American recording industry in the 1970s. And he worked in various high-profile positions in record labels. His job was to affect the sound recordings that were going out there to the general public. But for some reason, whatever that may have been, he turned whistleblower insider and did a series of interviews talking about what he'd been involved with. And he's the one that spoke about record companies having these dark covens of witches that would come into an altar room in the headquarters of the record companies and place a hex or a spell on the master recordings of all these records that would go out into the general public. So again, if that's what was happening in the era of analog tape and vinyl records back in the 1970s, who knows what they could be doing with this stuff now with sound frequencies and digital ways of doing things. So I think if you are a malevolent controller that doesn't have humanity's best interests at heart, the current era of electronic ways of doing everything provides so many opportunities to embed frequencies and who knows what else into digital recordings that are then put out into the market. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what a great breakdown. I just love this study in the book. You know, like you say, the Rockefellers tried to change that standard tuning from 432 to 440 in 1917. It didn't take and then tried again 
after World War II, which clearly shows they cared about something that seems like an odd thing to care about if it didn't have some kind of controlling effects. Like, why make a second push to do this? And I love the work of Mitch Horowitz, who you cite in the book. One thing that he said that always stuck with me is that they used Disney's Fantasia, which came out in 1940, right in that window, as a big showpiece for 440 tuning, and that that was the way to go. And I just feel like the idea that this hidden purpose behind Fantasia, which is a fairly strange release on its own with no real narrative or anything, it just makes a lot of sense in that context. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah. And just while I was telling the story of John Todd relating how these covens of witches would put a hex on these master tapes. It reminded me of a couple of other things that I've heard as well. I mean, first of all, in the book, I tell of this album by the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl's band, where he hit upon this idea of recording the whole album on analog tape when everybody else was already using computers. And they hit upon this marketing gimmick of shredding up the analog tape into tiny little fragments and putting a little piece of the tape into each of the CD copies of the album as it went out into the market. So you'd get the CD, you'd open up the jewel case, and you'd get this tiny little shred of the original analog tape. So you could say, yeah, that's a pretty neat marketing gimmick to stand out. But a suspicious mind, like mine, <laughs> might say, well, maybe there was something else going on there. Maybe you know that tape was imbued with some kind of energy that would then find its way out into the market. Or maybe I'm just crazy. I don't know. <laughs> but another thing that I was reminded of is I read a story in a book by a friend of mine, Carl James, talking about the film industry, where he says that during the production of Star Wars, the, the very first one, 1977, George Lucas's film, somebody that worked on the set and later came forward as a kind of whistleblower on that front says that George Lucas had hired a couple of witches, I guess, mm -hmm. occultists, certainly, that were staring into the camera as it was shooting the reels of film on celluloid back in the day, you know, and they seemed to be, you know, concentrating their intent on the camera as these spools of, of film reel were turning. And they were obviously imbuing that with some kind of energetic intent, which is very interesting. I also remember a story of Winston Churchill who apparently was also into the occult himself and studied many of the mystery school teachings. And there was this incident where he hired himself a bunch of witches again to stand up on the cliffs of Dover, looking out over the English Channel and concentrating their intent on the potentially invading German fleet that would have been arriving into England at that point. And so he's got this bunch of cloaked witches up on a bloody cliffside, you know, beaming their thoughts and their intent out into the sea. So it's all the same idea. It's, you know, using your will and your intent to kind of influence the outcome of a situation. And it just put me in mind of those different instances there, what we were talking about with the intention of sound. But I think that's the key to all of it. It always is. It's what is the will and what is the intent of whoever's controlling this situation? Uh, mm -hmm. It can be used for positive, uplifting, healing purposes, or it can be used for the opposite. And I think we've seen enough of the individuals that we're talking about at the top end of these industries, Greg, to know which of those options seems the most likely. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that John Todd example is so great. I do love any thread in this realm, any clue to magic being used against the people. There's another 
story you have or you touch on in the book. In 2012, the UK's Daily Mail reported that John McAfee, founder of the McAfee antivirus computer software, had taken to having Wiccan witches perform drumming rituals at his headquarters yeah. as a way of infusing his product with some kind of resulting energy. And sure enough, it is one of those powerhouse pieces of software that's a household name. Everybody knows this is what the effects do, apparently. Well, that's right. So if this stuff is all a load of bollocks and there's nothing to it, John McAfee and George Lucas and Winston Churchill didn't seem to think so. <laughs> exactly. And you mentioned Dave Grohl, the Foo Fighters, and you talk about him in terms of being a lifetime actor. And he's just an interesting example. Apparently, he was in an earlier hardcore punk band in D.C. named Scream. His father, James Harper Grohl, worked in politics as an assistant to Robert A. Taft Jr., Robert's father was William Howard Taft, the 27th president of the United States, and his father was Alfonso Taft, a founder of Skull and Bones. And during John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004, Dave Grohl joined the trail and dedicated the album In Your Honor to the former Skull and Bonesmen. And that is just how it works, man, isn't it? Absolutely. And Dave Grohl is a good example of all of that. He was in Nirvana, of course, before forming the Foo Fighters. He was the drummer in Nirvana. A lot of people have tried to link him with the strange situation of Kurt Cobain's untimely death. And it's been suggested that, you know, Dave Grohl may have known more about what really went on there. I can't prove that, but I just mention it because it's a popular rumor that's out there. Courtney Love, of course, was tied up in that whole thing. She was the girlfriend of Cobain at the time. She's an interesting one to look into because her dad is Hank Harrison, who was a one-time road manager for The Grateful Dead. We're back to them. The Grateful Dead also had a guy called Alan Trist as a one-time manager, and he turns out to have been the son of one of the founding members of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations in London, all about social engineering and mind control, Eric Trist. And as I mentioned earlier, Grateful Dead was CIA and Bohemian Club connected. So there's an interesting link going down to Courtney Love there. And then we get caught up in this whole Kurt Cobain mess. And Dave Grohl had a part in that as well. And there are links and connections for days. Yeah, man, there really are. And this has just been so great. Finally, man, I also wanted to ask you if you could talk to us about the book summary or the takeaway message that you can't just be entertained by conspiracy research. You have to use it. It's a worthwhile point to wind down with, if you ask me. I think so. And I guess I mentioned earlier that my job is an unpopular one because to many people, it looks as if I'm just pissing all over popular heroes and icons. As I said earlier, I take no pleasure in doing that. I'm just going where the information takes me. But my job is made easier in a sense, I guess, in that everyone loves music. So when you start talking about the fact that there's far more to know about the music industry than what's on the surface, and it involves some very prominent names, whether we're talking about the Beatles or Jay-Z or Michael Jackson, it does tend to prick people's ears up and they do tend to want to know more. And I like to use my work and my research on the music industry to kind of hook people in to a bigger conversation where we can talk about what's happening in the world generally. So the controllers, the occultists that we have at the top of the entertainment industry, the music industry, Hollywood movies and television, 
those aren't the only institutions that they control. They're at the top of everything. You know, they've got politics in their stranglehold. They've got the financial and banking world locked down. They've got the world of the military. They've got the world of science and academia. They've got food and drink corporations. They've got everything locked down and they have done for a very long time. So you can't just look at the music industry and leave it there. You've got to question, who are these people? Who are these networks? How did they gain so much power? How have we been asleep at the wheel for so long to allow this situation to become so entrenched? Why are they using occult teachings and ritualistic stuff to control us? What do they understand about the nature of reality and how it works that we're missing? And if they're using all these methods and tactics to lock us down, how can we harness some of that power for ourselves and use some of these methods to get rid of these bastards once and for all? and regain our own power and be able to enjoy our lives the way we should be able to without being subverted and controlled and enslaved every step of the way. So it's a much bigger conversation than just what's happening in the music industry. And I do get into that in the book. And it comes down to people needing to take personal responsibility for what's happening in this world. The biggest threat facing humanity right now is this fast march that we have towards transhumanism. And this smart grid, artificial intelligence reality that is becoming more and more real with every passing day. This is really dangerous stuff. And the generation that we have right now, this is my closing thought in the book, is in many ways the last generation that is going to decide whether we get totally locked down and enslaved and whether that prison door gets slammed shut or whether we take the responsibility collectively to turn this situation around. One or two people can't do it. Just a few researchers putting this work out and a few people reading these books and watching these YouTube videos and going, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then doing nothing with it is not going to make it happen. It's going to take large numbers of people taking some responsibility and understanding that we have to take the power back. Otherwise, things are just going to go so far and become so entrenched that we're not going to be able to roll it back. So there's a serious side to this and people really need to consider what their own role is going to be in how this stuff all pans out. One or two individuals, as I say, can't make it happen, but a large number of people all engaged collectively and working towards similar goals, which is to get our freedom back, can make it happen. And another thing I just want to add as a footnote is you can discover that groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Doors and guys like Jay-Z might not be all you thought they were, and there's stuff to know about them, but it doesn't mean you have to stop enjoying the music. A lot of people say to me, oh, well, you know, since I discovered the Beatles are dirty, I can't enjoy their songs anymore. And I disagree with that because I think the world would be a very grim and boring place without music there. And a lot of the stuff from these very controlled acts is great music. You know, let's not front. These are fantastic songs. And you can still enjoy them once you've taken on an understanding of who these groups may have been because the mind control spell has now been broken. It's no longer working its magic on you on a subliminal basis. You understand that these groups were probably created to have a controlling effect on us. But now that you understand that, just enjoy the music and just rock out to your favorite songs because. They're not going to affect you in that way anymore. That's a little footnote that I like to leave people with. Yeah. 
Cheers to that, man. Every once in a while, there'll be some random pop song that gets stuck in my head and I start to like it or I'll play it and people will be like, you like that song? I'm so surprised. I'll be like, hey, man, it was engineered to be appealing. Millions of dollars spent by experts. Of course, I'm going to like some of these songs. It's just the way it goes. And yeah, I mean, it is a sad world without music. I'm with you. Well, Mark, this has just been an awesome time. The sacred cows have been officially torched. You know, you know your subject area so well. It's always a pleasure. I know you have some conferences coming up as well as that San Diego visit I'm looking forward to. Talk to us about these things and also where to get the book before we go. Well, I'm coming for a whistle-stop trip to the States. I'm going to be speaking at the Truth Mind Reality Conference on Saturday, the 10th of March, and that's in Phoenix, Arizona. Other speakers on the bill include Mark Passio, amazing work that guy's put out, Lennon Honor, Sonia Barrett, and a whole bunch of others. So looking forward to that one. A few days afterwards, I'm going to be at Venice, Los Angeles, Venice, California, doing a bookstore launch, Mystic Journey Bookstore in Venice, California. That's Wednesday, the 14th of March. I'll be doing a talk and there'll be some books available there. I'm going to be touching San Diego in between to hang out with you as well and see your hometown. And in terms of the book, it's now available on Amazon. Or if people want to get a copy from me direct, I am mailing out books all over the world. Uh, it's only a little bit more expensive than Amazon. And some people just prefer that way of doing it to support the author and cut Amazon out of the picture. So if anyone wants one on that basis, they can just drop me an email to markdevlinuk at gmail.com and we can make all that happen. And uh, my websites are markdevlin.co.uk, musicaltruthbook.com and on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash TV. There's a whole bunch of my conference appearances. And this year, I'm going to be doing some talks where I show the visuals of all this stuff we've spoken about today. So, you know, we're talking about symbolism in 80s pop videos. In my talks, I show slides of these images so you can get a proper feel for what they are and just complete that aspect of the story. And I want to thank you, Greg, for having me on again. I've saved a bunch of information to unleash on this interview that I'm not putting out on others because I want you to have the scoop on much of this stuff. And I love your show, man. Always. Ah, thank you. Kind words. And I am always impressed by the depth of the connections you make and the connections you keep straight. I mean, it takes a certain kind of mind, a clear head to do this kind of work. We know mine's not clear. So I am just in awe of your ability to do that. So it is always a pleasure. Great job. Thanks again. Take care. And I'll see you in a few weeks, man. No doubt. Thank you, sir. What kind of Luya, dear people of the internet? Mark Devlin dropping knowledge once again, always on his A game with the memory of a champion and a good compliment to last week's Joe Atwell show, I would say. I think both Joe and Mark operate in some of the same lanes, some of my favorite lanes these days. And getting into lesser discussed genres and the music festival scene is pretty damn interesting. And the lifetime actor thing is just so fascinating, too. When you consider the lifetime actor thing to be as wide-scoped as it's presented, man, you come away with a very Truman Show kind of feeling. And not to comment on Mark specifically, but I do think sometimes the lifetime actor angle can go too far. I think sometimes the metrics with which we gauge a person's ties can be a bit too harsh. Because the nefarious few are always going to show interest in a person who gains popularity or proves to have some influence. 
So just because a meeting was had or a picture was taken doesn't always mean they're first and foremost some kind of operative. I only say this because I don't want to see us paint with too broad of a brush and lose the value of the very real connections that have been found. I mean, to find so many musicians with military intelligence parents is insane. From Jim Morrison right on up to Blink-182, it's like a commonality that really makes no sense outside of the context that musical movements are vehicles for cultural manipulation. I was also really glad to find a chapter on the science of sound in Mark's new book, because that makes a lot of sense to me too. I'm sure the weaponization of frequency goes well beyond the 440 switch at this point. As Mark pointed out, when you account for fully digitized music and EDM, there's no telling what could be embedded in that music. It's not like you have to hide it within real musical instruments. Nobody uses those anymore. I'm also always intrigued by a magic ritual anecdote, and of course we got a few of those too. The man digs deep, no doubt. And that said, do check him out at his upcoming U.S. conference appearances. Check out Musical Truth 2 if this type of topic is your jam. I really know of nobody that's more tuned in to musical conspiracies than our man Mark here. So I always appreciate him coming on. He was kind enough to save some stuff for the higher side, as he mentioned. And in the second hour plus show, of course, we got into a lot more. We talked about things like the work of Miles Mathis, an updated perspective to the Paul is Dead theory, the manipulation of the punk music genre, famous names of the beat movement and their sketchy connections, Ed fucking Sheridan of all people. <laughs> Obviously he's connected, because what the hell was he doing in Game of Thrones? We also talked about conspiracy-related symbolism in 80s music and music videos from that era. And, of course, the strangeness and symbolism surrounding what seems like the ritual death of George Michael. So if you like the Higher Side Chats in general and have an interest in hearing about these things, sign up. I know I had that little intro clip about getting in trouble with YouTube, and I don't really care about YouTube itself as much as I care about Google overall. You know, I do have some concerns over our ability to be found by new listeners in the next couple of years. So while we can, please share the show with people you think can handle it, post it on forums, or just sign up for Plus. I'm sure I can brace myself for things to come, but I would ask you to sign up for Plus to help me do that. I don't think I'm one of these guys that is constantly putting out the calls for promotion, and I don't want to kick myself for not doing it when I had the opportunity, if this draconian clampdown continues, and why wouldn't it? Five two-hour shows a month, five dollars. I've also got a pretty important plus exclusive episode coming up. You have hundreds of hours of archives that you've missed, and I just want to put us in the best position I can going forward. So if you think there's value here, be a pal, and treat yourself. But for now, I'm out of here. One more show coming at you to close out our short month of February, and then it's on to the next one. Big thanks again to Mark. I've done my part. Your move, Deep State genre designers, facilitators of the festival farce, and lifetime actors in the big machine. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the end.
Take it under. 